0: Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krause. I'm Richard Krause. It's a new year. 2015 is a long-distant memory now, and it's a time of new beginnings, In 2016, it's a time of diets, it's a time of going to the gym, well, for a week or so anyway, until all that stuff becomes tedious. But in the spirit of that, I wanted to have a look back at some interviews I've done in the last little while at the House of Krause. Talking about the beginnings of careers, so I've chosen three musicians, so I guess it's a musical hootenanny night here at the House of Kraus, and we are going to discuss how they got their starts. Alan Frew is probably best known as the lead singer for Glass Tiger. Uh, he has a new album out now called 80 to 90 Rewind. Uh, it's a collection of songs that were his favorites from the 80s and 90s, and he's put his own unique spin on them. We talk about beginnings of his musical career, how it was somewhat unexpected that he would be a musician, and does he consider himself a musician, or is there a broader term that he prefers to use? So we'll get to that one in a second. Gino Vanelli, of course, is known as the you know, hit maker who wrote songs like I Just Want to Stop, Living Inside Myself, Wild Horses, People Gotta Move, it goes on and on, Black Cars, powerful people. He's had a lot of hits. He has a new album out now called Gino Vanelli Live in LA. And uh, we went back to the very beginnings of his musical aspirations when he was just a young guy living in Montreal and playing the drums and trying to make his way. So we'll get to that one in a second. Dee Snyder is best known as the singer from Twisted Sister. He's had a lot of hits. You know, for a long time in the 1980s, when you thought of MTV, when you thought of music video, you thought of his face, the wildly painted face with the crazy curly hair and uh, the the really crazy over-the-top theatrics that kind of marked that era, not only in music video, but uh, for him. And, you know, he still hangs on to a little bit of that, uh, but he's uh, a fascinating conversationalist. All his songs are about rebellion uh his music tends to be hard loud and fast and I wondered if you know this rebellious streak came from having a state trooper for a father so that's where the conversation began I wanted to go back I wanted to go way back a little bit your songs by and large, have been about rebellion. They have been, uh, you know, sort of in your face. You were raised by a man, and you know, raised by the sort of a nuclear family unit. You know, though, man was a, a state trooper at yeah. one point. Yes, does the rebellion stem from that?
1: Well, I don't, I don't know if it has to do specifically specifically with him being a state trooper, but um, you know, being uh, um, a veteran, he fought yeah. fought in the Korean War, so he comes out, you know, out of the service in like 1953, gets married, and I'm born a couple of years later, and then he starts, you know, becoming being a cop. It's a, there is a certain mindset, a yeah. certain, um, I, I don't want to say if aggressiveness or whatever, I'm certainly not, I'm proud of my dad, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly militaristic. There's a good word approach to child rearing, (laughs) and uh, and being the oldest of six, uh, I I once got an apology from my parents. They said, you know, there's no there was really no books back in the fifties, and uh, and uh, and you know we just uh, did best we could, and some things worked, some things didn't. When it didn't work, we didn't do it on the other ones. I'm like, but meanwhile, I'm like, (laughs) I'm wearing women's clothing, you know. So uh, so yeah, certainly I think you know what my dad's lifestyle and what he had been through affected his child rearing and yeah. yeah may have brought out the rebellion in me you were the practice child yeah i was, <laughs> <laughs> my father was actually trying to take credit for my success he said you know if i wasn't so tough on you you wouldn't be the if you are i said we, you really want to go here i said how do you know i wouldn't be happier as a well-adjusted accountant just sitting at my desk smiling you know <laughs> instead of like a little dysfunctional and wearing women's clothes so um but anyway yeah but i, I love my dad was music a part of your life from the very, from the get-go? Yeah. Um, well, on my mother's side, she was musical. Mm-hmm. My dad, not so much. Yeah. Uh, but my mom, you know, was uh, was an artist and, and uh, a singer. I mean, not professionally, right. but uh, creatively. And my great-grandmother in Switzerland was an opera singer. And I, I was singing in the church choir from... As soon as I could sing, yeah. up till I was nineteen, uh, every Sunday I'd be. And sometimes the entire entire family was in
0: the choir. Is that right? Yeah, the Snyder family singers. Yeah, it's yeah. It's kind of a weird trap family. <laughs> yeah. <you know. laughs> and and what did you take away from that experience? I almost didn't think you know you you learn I guess about being in front of people about that sort of thing. But were you a bit of a showboater in the in the chorus or wh- wh- how was it for you? Well, um,
1: you know, I always always sang in. I I was in rock. Band since I was nine. Uh, But as soon as I heard about the Beatles, I was like, I'm going to be a rock star. But I was also in the Glee Club and the choir, and that was really the only place I felt. At home mm-hmm. was was in in that environment, singing environment, it was a place where I had a place. I really was one of those guys who didn't fit in with any particular clique. Right. Yet I could sing, and I always knew that I the choir was always ready to have me. Um, but even when I sang in the choir, I remember uh, getting uh, going for a rating. They used to have like the the state board would give rate your voice, right. and you know you'd learn this song, a classical piece. Mine was Strike the Vial by Francis Purcell, I remember it very well. And I uh, went in and sang, and I got a perfect score with one note, moves too much. <laughs> <laughs> because even standing there with my hands on my back, I was swaying back and forth, <laughs> uh, just by, by nature. So, is that showboating? I don't know, but I just instinctively, music of any kind, I, I feel it needs to be expressed in a physical way as well as a, a vocal one
0: like it was for so many other people, the Beatles and Ed Sullivan kind of changed everything. It was absolutely. I mean, uh, I'm
1: old. So, uh, <laughs> I, you know, it, it, I was, that day It was historic. It, yeah. it, it set things in motion for so many people. And just to show you, uh, listeners out there who did not experience it or, or are younger, uh, the, the power of this moment in time, my father, the cop, had banned television in our house. He decided at some point, and I think it was because the TV broke, but uh, <laughs> he likes to be, he it was more grandiose than yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that we need to get back to basics, start reading books, conversation and, and around the conversation, dinner table, conversation, yeah. playing board games together and making puzzles. <laughs> so um, we had no TV in 1964. Right. but. That event, and, and again, to give you some perspective, again, you know this, uh, but the listeners may not, 72 million people, there were only three yeah. major stations in, in in the States then. 72 million people saw the Beatles that night. I did not. I was making a puzzle, <laughs> but I went to the bus stop that Monday morning, and talk about a buzz it was everybody at the stop was just you know like and i literally i remember i said to russell niederman i said what's going on he goes you didn't see him i said no you know we got no tv he goes the beatles man i said what's that he goes it's a rock band he said these words everybody was screaming and the minute i heard those faithful words i didn't even know what a beetle was right. i just said i said i want to be a beetle I want everybody to be screaming for me because I was the oldest of six right. and the first actual grandchild or niece or nephew in the family. But after like I was born and then it was like there was a race or something because all the women <laughs> started just having children and I was like, "Take care of yourself. You're six months old. Right. You know." So uh, I
0: needed attention, and uh, and that's how I found out. That's how I figured I'd get it. So interesting to look back at that moment in time because um, I was just a couple of years too young to to have that moment be as significant as it was for others, but later- I used to stay up late and watch the Midnight Special and Alice Cooper would be on or a band that I really wanted, but there was no MTV. There was no none of that, and you had to relish in those moments, and you would talk about them for the rest of the week in oh, school. Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, yeah. As as TV, uh, as music expanded on TV Well, music was always, always had a place. I should say yeah. it's rock and roll yeah. had more and more of a place, because even in, in the 60s, it was like, you know, a special theater tonight, yeah, yeah. the Beatles, like, you know, like you're doing yeah. you a big favor, but <laughs> shows like the rock like the midnight special and rock don kirk's rock again. concert is how i first saw alice cooper first saw acdc first saw so many of these bands yeah. that again had a huge effect on me but you're right there was no dvd or youtube where you could just watch things repeatedly you you saw it and had to remember it and how do you remember it by just Talking about it yeah. and reliving that moment, you can't just hey, let's watch it again. You know, it, it was a lot more. I don't know. It, it's just, it, I think it, it reinforced the importance
0: of these things in you because it was so precious. Well, it made it special, I yeah. think because you had to wait for it and you weren't going to be able to see it again. And I think too, and we'll get on to we'll we'll get we'll get back on track in a sec. But I no, no, think, this is a conversation, yeah. all right? And that's I've been doing radio twenty yeah. years. This is how I like to do interviews. Okay. So what I think about that whole thing is that. When you would watch Don Kirshner's rock concert, you'd see Alice Cooper, the next band would be Bread, the next band after that might be Mark Bolin, the next band after that would be something different again. And it gave you Abba, uh, Abba and even, it would give you a sense yeah. of the width and the breadth of the music that was out there. Now that we have instant access to everything, I find that people focus on the thing that they'll I only listen to heavy metal, so I'm only gonna listen to that. You don't get Exposed to as much stuff now
1: This is absolutely true And this is why We don't have Rock stars anymore And and, and, and people say Well how's that Because Everything is so targeted mm-hmm. And specific um, You know about bands You like But you're not forced and it really was forced yeah. to have exposure on a broader scale to other artists I think back to MTV and much music where I mean how, what radio station would have Iron Maiden, Twisted Sister yeah. Eurythmics, Kaja Gugu <laughs> yeah, yeah. and, and Abba on the same channel yeah. in the same half hour so but that caused people to see stuff and expand their horizons and, and even if you weren't into it you were aware of these people as entities now I mean they're, they're, it's target mark it's all about Target marketing, so you don't get that that spillover, which creates those larger than life characters
0: that everybody knows. Yeah, I I mean, I guess you know, MTV was was sort of the very beginnings of the idea of that because you had MTV Raps and the Heavy Metal Hour and that kind of stuff, which really focused down people's interests. Uh, But it also, still, I mean, as you say, Kajagoogoo and Twisted Sister in the same half hour—that doesn't happen anywhere anymore.
1: No, and and, and, you know, and and radio stations didn't have that either. It was it was a unique moment in time as well which sadly is gone but you know and, and the old people old people they <laughs> say uh, they, they say well we I remember when MTV or much music played music you know yeah. but you know it, it went away because the younger people aren't interested in that they can go to their iPhone yep. and watch their bands anytime they want they want something else provided by this service but but to the older fans it's, it, we
0: lost something there So 10 years of Twisted Sister before MTV, before uh, it seemed to me like you burst onto the scene. What keeps you going for 10 years?
1: We were hugely popular locally. Right. Regionally, the tri-state area, which was New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, had a club scene. It was an 18-year-old drinking age back then, and we would play. And this is the God's honest truth: to a thousand to three thousand people a night, five nights a week. So you're rock stars. We're rock stars locally. We've got yeah. bodyguards. <laughs> we've got. We've. We've got. It's. It's crazy. No records. It's just. Uh, and yet, so we, by day we're getting rejected by every label in the country. But by night, we go out in front of a packed house of screaming teenagers, and and we say, well, who knows what's going on? Those suits in the offices and the towers uh, who aren't even coming down to see our band yeah. in the suburbs, or these kids who are lining up to see an unsigned band with no records out night after night after night. So that really kept us, sustained us, really. And when you see, if you see the documentary, We Are Twisted, Blanking Sister, is <laughs> a lot of fan interviews, and they talk right. to them and say, what? what was it about this band? Why did you continue to support them and stand by them and believe in them when they couldn't get arrested by the record labels. Yeah, there's places like Maxwell's. I think was a big one, right? Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Like uh, there were, it was it was a there was a club circuit, right. you know, uh, and that bands played. Unfortunately, when the drinking age went to 21, it all but died. Right. Because you know, rock bands, especially heavy rock bands, they thrive more in the you know late teens, yep. very early twenties. Angry and once,
0: hormones. You yeah, gotta have them. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: You know, I never would not have met my wife if it wasn't for uh, the 18 year old. <laughs> drinking age because <laughs> she got
0: fake proof and snuck in at 15 <laughs> <laughs> and I've been with her ever since well yeah here's the thing so you've been uh, with your wife for many years
1: 39 now. years since I met her Jesus 39 years it's and- the men indoor freestyle rock and roll record I'm just letting you know
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you you have said uh, and I'm just trying to find the quote here uh, about your life you said in an interview that I read with you it's so normal that you're going to be really disappointed I never thought lifestyle mattered, you said. I've been clean and sober my whole life, as has been my wife. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I thought the great thing about rock and roll was, I mean, and rock rock and roll defined to me was making your own choices, being an individual, uh, you you know, being the person you wanted to be. And having grown up with a large family and a traditional uh, lifestyle, I liked it. I mean, I liked it. I wanted to be married. I wanted to have kids. Uh, my parents weren't partiers, and they sort of shared that with me and imparted that to me. And um, and I said, yeah, but I want to rock, yeah. you know. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to rock by, you know, be a dad by day and rock by night. Uh, that kind of shocked a lot of people when they found out about it. Not that I was ever secretive, but as as the word spread, people, were, fans, were kind of disappointed. Right. And I said, and and which was hurtful to me because I, because uh, I started to see things like, well, he's not a real rocker. Right. I go, whoa, whoa. I'm I mean, so now the rock community is going to tell me what I have to do to be a rocker. I mean, this this goes against why I got into this in the first place. Yeah. Uh, being an individual, have it your way. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, so pick your own. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Uh, so choose your own path. Choose your yep. own path. And um, yeah. So, but I have refuse to adjust my uh, my standards for other people.
0: D Snyder it was a lot of fun to talk to. That guy has more energy than I do and as he says several times during the interview, I'm old. I also really love something he did. So, after the interview is over, we leave, we're standing in the hallway of the House of Krauss, we're talking a little bit, and he says, Oh, let me give you my business card. Now, that happens. People uh, hand out business cards in these kind of situations, but D. Snyder doesn't have a business card like anyone else that I've ever seen. D. Snyder's business card, because he's a heavy metal singer, is made of metal. It has a place of honor on my desk at the House of Krauss because it's the coolest business card that I've ever been given. Alan Frew was the singer and still is the singer of Glass Tiger. His new album, 80 to 90 Rewind, is a look back at a lot of the songs that he loved during the 80s and the 90s. I take him back a little bit further than that. I take him back to the very beginnings of when he first realized that he liked to be up in front of people and sing, and then how, through kind of a, a strange route, he became a rock star with... Big hits like, Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone and I Am With You Tonight and I Could Never Lie To You, all sorts of songs like that, that have made him uh, one of Canada's best loved singers. Here's Alan for I wanna go back in time uh, a little bit and just talk about uh, growing up when you first maybe had the inkling that music was going to play more of a role in your life than just being a hobby?
2: Well, when I look back on it, um, it was probably... uh, I didn't realize it probably at the time, but um, the greatest influence in my life was Lennon and McCartney. The Beatles, As soon as the She Loves You and and, uh, Love Me Do and these things come on the radio, I knew that a dynamic had... Uh, occurred and uh, something had drastically changed for me. Um, and uh, being a little boy, that just sort of was like, uh, let's pretend you're Paul McCartney. Yeah. And uh, my pal would come into the room and we'd, you know, uh, pretend we were the Beatles and then um, get up in front of the class at school and we're really air guitaring it, but there was there was no there was no term like air guitar. Right. And I was always Paul. And so these things were uh, were happening all around me and then uh, uh, I, I guess the willingness, my father was uh, quite the character and every Friday or Saturday night was a little uh, impromptu party in my house. The pubs would empty out and everybody would spill in and my dad would put little shows on and um, uh, he would dress up and pretend he was Rudolph Valentino and all these <laughs> great characters. <laughs> And uh, I sort of learned uh, uh, just by watching him, and uh, I kind of always knew I had a, a, a good voice. I knew, I, and I knew I was, a, you know, able to get up in front of people and not be embarrassed. But I kind of tucked it away. I did learn a little, a few chords on guitar, but that was it. And then we came to Canada when I was just about to turn 16, and I had no idea this was going to happen. It wasn't something I chased. It, it found yeah. me. Really,
0: yeah. And and was there a moment when you said, "Okay, you're 16. My, you know, you, you still like the Beatles. You probably still like the Beatles today." Absolutely. And uh, but you know, it wasn't a career choice for you. But then, how does it happen? Because I know Glass Tiger was originally named Tokyo. Yeah. There must have been bands before that. Just
2: one one band before that. What really? happened was, I met a lad in a town not far from here called Aurora. Mm-hmm. I was living in Newmarket, and he taught me. A few more chords on acoustic guitar, and he and I became a duet, and we were uh, a bigger band a duo, and yeah. uh, uh, we would do parties and weddings and stuff like that. <laughs> and and uh, play
0: just cover songs—you're not yeah, writing songs no, at this point. No,
2: I haven't written anything yet. And uh, I was—I uh, was home one Wednesday night and the Leafs were playing and that's when (laughs) that's when it was Wednesday nights were sacred yeah and my mother said there's a bunch of scruffy guys at the front door and I said well chase them away she said no 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 they (laughs) they want want to speak to you and uh, and so I went outside and these guys said "Um, uh, we think we heard one of us heard you at a party and you've got a great voice you sound like Paul McCartney and would you come and and, and, uh, do an audition with a band and and I just wanted to get rid of them because at least <laughs> the Leafs will play Montreal. And I said, okay. And then uh, what they did was, poor bugger, they told the lead singer there was no rehearsal uh, one night, hmm. and they invited me down, and I sang Get Back uh, by the Beatles for them, and uh, the rest is history.
0: <laughs> and and what was the, the lag time between Tokyo and then Glass Tiger taking off in such a big way? Because, you know, there was a moment that you couldn't turn on much music or the right. radio and right. not hear a Glass Tiger song, but that didn't happen overnight.
2: No, but really quickly, that story I told you was probably around about 1976 or right. seven. And I joined that band, it was called Onyx, and we did the bar circuit and right yeah. up in Northern Quebec and Valdor and Amos and Quebec City. And, and we were starving and <laughs> uh, it was a nightmare. And when it imploded, I said, that's it. And I quit. And I wanted to go into medicine. And um, I set off in this journey where I became an orderly. And finally, I worked in autopsies for four years. And and then I became a registered nurse. And this is all happening when the bass player calls me and says, you know, are you sitting down? <laughs> I said, well, come and speak to these other guys. And that became Tokyo. And that was 1981. And we cracked it in '86. Now, tell me, let's—I
0: didn't know about this. You worked on Autonomy. you mm-hmm. did all that stuff. Tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about that. Those moments in your life. Had you put music away completely, or were yeah, you, yeah, yeah?
2: I mean, you know, I used to go at the pubs and watch other bands and and say, "Well, they need a lead singer." <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I was I was married very young uh, and became a single parent very young, right? And so I decided to. Um. um I wanted to be a doctor. That right. was it, and and then I paid a price for letting my sciences go. And they <laughs> they said, you know, you, you need to do it another way. So I got a job as a uh, as an orderly, and I worked as a pathologist assistant for about four years. Not squeamish at all. N- no, I I wouldn't like to go back to it anymore. Once you've lost your stomach, you've kind of lost it. But no, I wasn't squeamish at all. And um, I worked in autopsies for about four years, and then went back and took my RN, and then I was going to get a job, I was going to become an an operating room nurse when uh, um, uh, it was getting too crazy, and they asked me to take a leave of absence from the hospital because I was sleepwalking, I was still playing the bars. I, I would drive to London, Ontario, and gig from nine o'clock at night to one in the morning, and drive back and be on the the day shift at six o'clock,
0: and and work for twelve hours. Oh right? yeah. yeah, you you crazy long shifts.
2: Oh yeah, and the the night that Glass uh, Tokyo opened for Boy George and Culture Club at Maple Leaf Gardens, two nights, I was on the night shift. No, I had to leave and go work the night shift those nights.
0: That's amazing. So yeah. you have this double life, rock star by night. Yeah orderly by day yeah how did you find a balance in that or did you
2: the, um no it was just bedlam mental bedlam yeah um like i say i started to uh i started to uh, sleepwalk and uh and uh, my behavior was kind of changing and and uh, and i was in charge you yeah. know at one point i was in charge of the floor and uh i was running a, a kind of a medical and then a surgical floor and uh and the staff loved me, and I loved mm-hmm. them. I'd been around them for years, but they sort of said, things are happening to Alan. So the administrator called me in and said, look, why don't you take a leave of absence? Your job will always be here. And I did that, and I wrote, don't forget me when I'm gone, about <laughs> six weeks later. <laughs> and my
0: life changed forever. Do you think that taking, not exactly a break from music, but that that moment when you weren't, playing there was a time when you weren't playing all the time but then sort of eased back into it while you were working do you think that that uh gave you a different perspective on things or gave you time to think about things or gave you time to decide really what you wanted to do with your life
2: well richard what you find incredibly interesting is i still don't know why i do well here's here's why i do it yeah because i can right that's the only reason i do it i don't have this uh uh, the, the type of nature that's just dedicated to, or I've seen an an, an incident, I must write about it and sing right. about it. I just f- kind of stroll through it. And uh, I, when I when I turned 50, uh, I finally came to terms with what I really am, and that is I'm a communicator. And I get as much pleasure out of uh, doing this uh, as I do being on stage. I get as much pleasure out of writing a song for someone else and they, they make it a hit. It, Glass Tiger and music and performance is just another part of who I am. So um, it took me a long time to to realize that. And even when Glass Tiger was at its peak, I I didn't really quite understand it. We're
0: talking about just the idea of kind of being pushed in a way to do what you do. And you say it's communicating. Yes. Not the idea of something. So no matter what it is.
2: Yep. If I was paying, like when we used to tour, you know, you'd be with Tina Turner, or you'd mm-hmm. be with Rod Stewart, and, you'd be, and I would just come home, and my mum and dad would go like, all ah, right, you know, you're back, okay." And I was <laughs> Don't a single
0: parent, really, yeah.
2: and I was a single parent, and uh, and then I'd go down to the pub, and we'd play dominoes, and we'd play darts, and it, it that the Glass Tiger just didn't exist in that space, and um, and I was quite happy to to, to have it that way.
0: Alan Fru has a great story. I love how he almost didn't want to take the audition with the band because of course the Toronto Maple Leafs are playing Montreal and you can't miss that on television. Uh, He has a great new album out called 80 to 90 Rewind. So check that out. He also has a really inspiring story about surviving a stroke and his subsequent recuperation from that. And perhaps one day on the House of Krauss we'll have him back in to talk about that. It's a great story and uh, we wish him all the best. Gino Vanelli is uh, a Canadian fixture and international star, but someone, if you grew up in Canada, you listen to uh, just by default. Every restaurant you went in, every radio station you turned on, every television that you turned on had an ad with a Gino Vanelli song like, I just want to stop or living inside myself or wild horses or people got to move. You could not avoid, not that you'd want to, but you couldn't avoid hearing his music during the 1970s and the 1980s and into the 1990s. He's been a little quieter uh, since then, but he's got a new album out called Gino Vanelli, Live in LA, and I was really fascinated to speak with him. We talked about his early days in Montreal and uh, and just the idea of getting into music and, and and finding a voice, finding a way to express himself. I think you'll be really interested in what he has to say. I want to go back to growing up in Montreal. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to when your father, Russ, was uh, a big band musician. And I want to talk about what it was like around your house. Was it a house filled with music?
3: It it was more than music, although there was a lot of music. But it it was uh, a house that had its own culture. My my parents uh, were first-generation Canadians. Their parents had come straight from Italy and uh, a lot of first-generation Canadians from the old country were, were doggedly determined uh, to be different than their parents. Right. And so everything that you would have thought... Uh, that an Italian family had, like, you know, Italian provincial furniture and and, and purple drapes and, and things like that. <laughs> and my father was, like, into Scandinavian skimpy furniture and uh, white walls and marble and granite and all those things. It was almost that they were the, the fractious children, you know, of, of their parents. And, and that was... A decision that was a conscious decision on their part or was it just sort of culture?
0: that's what happened?
3: No I think that's just what happens when you say I'll spread my own wings and we're no longer the old country we're we're in the new country let's go for the new country so there was that element uh, and of course you know my father was a a big band singer and uh, uh, but more than that he really was impassioned and loved music generally Mm -hmm. And so uh, we were, I think, the first people out of all the people I knew that had a stereo. Right. I mean, that, that big jump, that leap from a hi-fi to, to, you know, an actual stereo set where you had left and right speakers doing different things. <laughs> um, you know, we were one of the first people, at least, you know, in our area that had it. And uh, that was something for me. I used to come home and, from school every day and, and marvel at, at uh, the sound of stereo. Because, especially because it had tweeters and a woofer and things like that. and And uh, my father loved opera and he loved uh, classical music. He loved jazz. Um, he loved Latin music. Um, he loved big band music. So all those records, um, as soon as they would come out, he'd have he and my his brother were, were, were music, tremendous music aficionados in that way. Without them, do you think we'd be sitting here talking? No, Of no. course not. No. no, no. I mean, if I was born under you know a doctor's roof or a lawyer's roof, my disposition would probably be different.
0: So it is uh, nurture, not nature. Then I guess it's Freedom. a bit of both because
3: yeah. you know you have the predisposition. Because I was when I was four or five years old, uh, before actually hearing a note of or understanding a note of music, maybe I was three or four. I, I my father told me I can barely remember this. I, I don't. I can't remember it. Mm-hmm. I was two or three, and uh, my father said. Uh, Elvis Presley came on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1956 or 57, something like that. I saw it. I took a tennis racket and started singing (laughs) Teddy Bear. (laughs) So there was some kind of predisposition. But my, as far as me, as far as I was concerned, I was either going to be in music, be a literature teacher, or join the uh, the Canadian Navy. Really? <laughs> yeah, either way, I was going to.
0: And, and Okay, well, music we get. Music, we, uh, what was it about
3: studying literature or being a literature teacher or the Navy that appealed to you? I, I loved poetry. Right. I loved the lake poets. I, I love the sound of words, the look of words on yeah. a page, and so I read poetry uh, all the time and tried my hand at it when I was a kid in school and actually wrote some love poems to s- some little girlies. <laughs> Did they work? Uh, well, I, I wasn't prepared for what was going to happen, but the Navy was because I I, I loved adventure, right? And I, I dreamt that that the your average Navy seaman, you know, would see the world and. Have a woman in every port, and <laughs> you know would would be in in dangerous times, and in, I, I mean it. It just appealed to me um, that the sense of adventure would be there. So, I, I guess I combined, you know. Uh, poetry and a sense of adventure when i I became a musician a traveling musician my guest in studio is gino
0: vannelli uh right now you can pick up live in la a cd dvd blu-ray combo uh pack that is available right now we'll tell you more about that a little bit later
3: on when you were 15 you started writing songs what kind of songs were you writing then well, my first uh, real mentor, you know, I, although he didn't know it at the time, I, I loved Jimmy Webb and I loved Burt Backrack, yeah. both of them. Um, maybe even, I mean, Cole Porter and Gershwin, you know, uh, because I'd been so accustomed to listening to those songs from the big, big band records and then, and then jazz singer records. But really in my time, uh, the first time I, I heard some of the Bacharach songs, um, Walk On By, Anyone Who Had a Heart, that was in 62, you know, 63. Now, there is a good writer, and I thought that Brian Wilson was, was really a great writer because uh, when he finally came up with The Warmth of the Sun and, and some of the other tunes that he came up with, I thought they really, really ranked uh, as as really great songs. And, God only knows, maybe one of the great pop songs it's true. of all time. It, it, it's a great pop song, and so he really had something on the ball that was a little bit more than your average uh, pop group at the time. Yeah. Yeah, there's a movie called Love and Mercy.
0: Yeah, uh, I heard in about th- it in theaters uh, right now. I guess probably on DVD by with, now. With Cusack. Yeah, with John Cusack playing the older uh, Brian Wilson and an actor named Paul Dano playing the yeah. younger. And uh, it gives you a, a sense and a feel of what it was like to be Brian Wilson. It's yeah. not a biography so much as it is you walk away with the feel of what it must have been like to be him.
3: Yeah, I heard it's it's it's, it's a dram, it's a dramatic you know rendering of his life. Yeah. Now, so for you, so you're writing songs, uh, just sitting in the bedroom with the guitar. No, I'm, I'm pondering because uh, I mean, you know, when you listen to uh, some of the great songs written, whether it be you know um, Wichita Lineman yeah. or, or something like that, or like I, like I say, a Bert backrack song, uh, y- you know, people don't understand, you know, how much goes into writing a song. That it's really not the effort so much as the effort paying off after a while. And and this, the study of language, the study of scanning lyrics, the study of what makes a memorable melody, how does the melody relate to the chord? How many notes should there be to the chord? Should should the bass be a dominant uh, bass, or sh- should it be actually? Ton- should there be a tonic in it or not? I mean, all those questions come up, and they color the song, and they color it colors the lyrics in a way that you have infinite. Amount of choices. so what choice to make? And of course, when you're a novice, you think there are no choices. I mean because the blank canvas doesn't speak to you right. But then all you know is you have a passion and so you just start scribbling on that blank canvas and you look at it and part of you says that's nothing like background <laughs> 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 So finally you try your hand at it and you're hit and then one day you know you form a little thing that says that's pretty good yeah. and so maybe you catch a little sliver of it. And, um, of course, there is a predisposition or natural talent to it. And people some people have a natural talent to writing catchy lyrics or a catchy phrase or a catchy melody. And that's great to have. But you really, really need to, to, to educate yourself. So, I mean, I studied music at McGill for a little mm-hmm. while. And I studied drums for six or seven years. And I, I studied piano. I studied guitar. I stu- studied voice. Uh, and even with all the studying, I, I mean, it, 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 it kind of gives you a hint. But the only real schooling is you spend the hours down there pounding away until finally one thing comes out and you say, now that's what I've been looking for. Well,
0: it's like Malcolm Gladwell says, You don't get good at something until you've spent ten thousand hours doing it. He uses the example of the Beatles playing in Hamburg, yeah, playing twelve-hour sets in Hamburg, and when they emerged from that, and then all of a sudden people start to
3: notice them, they were fully formed, but they had done their ten thousand hours of work already. That's precisely it. And uh, I I was, you know, one thing my father, you know, had had trained me, trained me mentally for was that it wouldn't come easy. Mm -hmm. So I was prepared that it would it would it would take many many long hours now there's
0: a a moment your father was a musician but there's a moment at which in everyone's life i guess you sort of deciding what you're going to do am of i course. going to be a doctor am i going to join the navy am i going to be a literature teacher yes. or am i going to be a musician uh-huh. and musician isn't the easiest choice of all of those things when was that decision made for you and, and did it seem realistic because i know there's a few steps between yeah I'm gonna do this for a living and actually being able to do it for a living for you.
3: well I was in love with drumming because I loved Gene Krupa and I yeah. loved I love Buddy Rich and of course Ed thickpen who played with Oscar Peterson I used to I used to run home from school every Friday because at four o'clock on CBC the Oscar Peterson trio would be on yeah. and to me it's one of my favorite moments of the week and I used to love Ed thickpens you know brushwork but I mean I couldn't help but notice you know Oscar's you know great Pianistic skills, Um, so drums was really my predominant thrust because I just loved hitting those things. Um, That's a teenage boy thing too. It 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 really is. Uh, Poor mom, you know (laughs) I I I pounded her head. Um, But it's not until I left the drums one day and I had I had a group called the Jacksonville Five, and I sang up front, you know, and tried to hide behind the microphone stand. Mm. And I sang out a song until I saw the people actually reacting to me as a singer, as a communicator. Part of me, you know, the young young boy said, now this is cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everyone... You know, that you talk to who has gone
0: on to become a professional musician and those who haven't have that moment where they say, like Pete Townsend, well, of course I picked up a guitar because girls like guys who played guitar. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of
3: part of it, too, right? If we're honest with ourselves, maybe. Well, you got <laughs> jumping hormones at 14, you know, and, and I, I'm not sure what comedian said it, but it's the worst age. I mean, you you. you you want to mount anything that moves, and yet you look you, the worst. <laughs> yeah. your, your pimples are breaking out, or you got blackheads on the tip of your nose. You know, so uh, uh, you know. Uh, for me, though, music—it it was just such a natural outlet that by the time I was fifteen or sixteen. I, I knew that I, I was gonna be a musician, a professional musician, a professional singer. I wasn't sure about how, how the singing would go mm-hmm. because I, I was in love with the composition and the playing a lot more than the singing. It's not till later that, that I realized that I, I, I really could sing my own compositions. <laughs>
0: That's Gino Vanelli. The new album is called Gino Vanelli, live in L.A., and I can tell you, the voice is intact, and so is that incredible mane of hair. One of my main memories of growing up in Canada is thinking back to infomercials that used to run for his albums. It must have been a Greatest Hits album that they sold via television. And his hair, this incredible mane of hair was one of the things that that for some reason has stayed with me from childhood. And when he stopped by the House of Krauss, I was pleased, delighted. I had a little nostalgic hug thinking that that hair is still intact. It made me very, very happy also makes me very happy if you're still listening right now. This is the longest House of Kraus we've ever done. So if you're still here, if you're still hearing my voice, thanks so much for sticking it out. We really do appreciate it. Uh, it's over now. We're saying thank you to Alan, thank you to Gino, thank you to Dee, but most of all, thank you to you for coming by every week. We put a new show up every Monday, uh, but thank you for coming by and, and staying with us and stopping by to visit. Uh, you never know who's gonna drop by, so please, check back with us
2: frequently.